there's one thing that all of us who are Christians should be clear about, it is that we are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, apart from any works that we do. We know that if our salvation was dependent upon us and upon our works, all of us would be lost because none of us can keep the law. None of us can perfectly obey God. No one can live up to his righteous standard except Jesus. Jesus is the only one who was sinless, who was perfect, and that's why only Jesus could lay down his life on the cross as a perfect sacrifice, a perfect substitute for us and pay the price for the forgiveness of our sin. And if you're not a Christian, this is, the, this is the main thing we want you to know. This is why we're giving money for people to start churches and do evangelism and, and do disaster relief is because we want more and more people to hear the good news that Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves and that if we trust Him, we turn from our sin, then we'll be forgiven and made right with God and it's all of grace, it's all a gift. All of us ought to be clear on that. But there is a related truth that all of us who are Christians are not often as clear about, but that the Bible is quite clear about, and so we should get clear in our minds and our lives. Right? One of the one of the criticisms of what I just told you about the gospel, that it's apart from works, it's grace, it's a gift is that some people will say, well, if that's true, then you can just live however you want. Right? You don't have to live a righteous life. You don't have to obey God. You just, if God's gracious like that and He forgives and all that, then can't you just, you know, live however you want to live, do whatever you want to do? We know that, we know that that's not true. Right? We know that's not right. We know that's not Uh, what the grace of God means. It does not mean, well, since God is gracious, we can just go on sinning. We know that's not what that means, but why do we know that's not what that means? There's more than one answer to that question, but one of the answers is what we're going to see this morning in Romans chapter 2. So let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. I had intended for us to look at all of verses 6 through 11 this morning, and I was preparing that direction this week. And then when I came to write the sermon, I know about how long the sermon needs to be for me to preach about 30 minutes. And I got to the end of verse 7, and it was about long enough for 30 minutes. So that's about as far as we're going to get. And we'll come back to the rest probably after Easter. But what I want you to see this morning in these verses is that Paul teaches that all people, Christians and non-Christians, all people will be judged according to their works. And that does not contradict what we just said about being saved by grace through faith apart from works. Now, how that can be, right, and why I would say that, I, I hope to show you uh, through Romans chapter 2 as well as some other passages this morning. So let's look together at Romans chapter 2. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 6 
through 11, even though we'll be focusing mainly on verse 6 and verse 7 of Romans chapter 2. Here's, here's what it says. Verse 6 says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Now remember that in chapter 2, what Paul is doing is he is addressing the religious or moral hypocrite who listens to the charges of sin against the pagans and against humanity in chapter 1. Here's the, the litany of ways they've rebelled against God, the reasons they deserve God's judgment. And this person says, Yes, that's exactly right. Those people over there, they all are terrible and they all deserve God's judgment. But not me. Not people like me. Because I'm a good person. I do the right thing. I'm on God's team. And so I don't have to worry about all that. And Paul says to that kind of person, and he probably has mainly in mind the Jews who have not accepted Jesus as the Messiah, though he could have certain Gentiles in mind as well. He says to that person, You judge other people for their sins, but you don't recognize that you yourself are a sinner. That you are liable to the judgment of God just like they are, because even if you don't sin as flagrantly as those people do, or you maybe not sin in exactly the same ways that they do, you too, at root, are a sinner just like them, do the same kinds of things in general as they do, even if not in the particulars. And so if you judge other people for their sin, and you're a sinner, guess what? You're condemning yourself. You're saying that you too deserve God's judgment. And if you don't repent, if you don't take the the opportunity God has given you, the patience He has shown you, the kindness He has extended to you, if you don't take that as an opportunity to repent, but instead continue in your hard-hearted, self-righteous rebellion. Nothing is left for you but the wrath and judgment of God. That's what he's been talking about. And in verse 6 and 7 and on, he explains a little more fully why that is so. And what he tells us in verse 6 is that God's judgment is going to be according to works, according to our deeds, right? And as at least one scholar pointed out, the purpose of him saying this right here is to say to the Jews, you're not going to escape judgment because you're a Jew, right? And, and we could extend that out and say, no one's going to escape judgment because they're a member of a Baptist church. Nobody's going to escape judgment because their granddad was a deacon or their mom was a Sunday school teacher. or whatever. Nobody is going to escape judgment because of some 
privilege they have in their, you know, upbringing or where they come from or whatever, like the Jews had all these privileges from being God's chosen people. Nobody's going to get into heaven based on that. That's just not how it works, right? Here is how it works, Paul says. It works in this way. God is going to judge according to works. And notice what he says. He says that God will render to each one, to each one, each individual person is going to stand before God and there's going to be a reckoning and accounting for each individual person. No one's exempt from this. No one gets a pass. Everyone is going to stand before the Lord. And Paul says God is going to render or repay to each person. In other words, what he gives to them is going to fit what they have done. Right? There's going to be a rendering. There's going to be a repayment of sorts. Not to say that you've perfectly earned whatever you're going to get, but that there is going to be a correlation between what God gives you and what you have given, what you have done. Right? And how is this going to work? He's going to render or repay to each one according to their works, according to what they have done. You don't get a pass because you're a Jew. You get repaid according to what you've done, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Right? You, you, everyone is going to give an account before the Lord, and to each one is going to be rendered by God according to what they have done. Now, as we hear that, right, as we read this verse, as we think about what this means, probably there is already rising in our minds an objection. Right? How can that be? How can it be true that if we're saved by grace, apart from our works, how can it be true that God is going to render to us according to our works? And so maybe, maybe as we're thinking about this verse, we're thinking, okay, I know that God is going to do this, but I'm pretty sure that does not apply to Christians. Right? He must be talking about what's going to happen to unbelievers. Or maybe, maybe he's talking about what's going to happen to believers and unbelievers, but once believers, it's sort of sorted out what they ought to have reckoned to them, that's going to be wiped away because of grace, and they're going to be given something. Different. Maybe that's how it's going to work. But somehow, somehow this, this cannot apply to Christians. Right? That's probably our natural sort of objection that rises in our minds. But here's the thing. That objection has a lot of other passages of Scripture to overcome. It's not just this place right here where we're told that each individual person is going to be judged according to their works. For example, in Matthew 16, 27, Jesus says to his disciples, The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. In Matthew 25, the passage we read earlier about the sheep and the goats, that's the point of that passage, that those who did feed and visit and care for the least of these are going to receive a different judgment than those who didn't care for and feed and visit the least of these. 2 Corinthians 5 
9 and 10, the Apostle Paul himself says, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. So he's talking about Christians, about people who want to please the Lord. And here's what he says about why, we, why do we seek to please the Lord? We've got grace. I've got grace. Why, why do we try to please the Lord? For, he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That's pretty straightforward, right? Peter, in 1 Peter 1.17, writing to a group of churches that are in a kind of exile, and he's trying to encourage them to live holy and godly lives, and here's what he says. 1 Peter 1.17, If you call on Him as Father, so we're talking about Christians, those are the only people who can call God as Father, if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially, According to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So even though you're a Christian, even though you call God his father, you got to remember your father is also a judge who is impartial, who judges each person according to their deeds. So you need to bear that in mind. As you make decisions about how you live, the way you conduct yourself ought to be governed by the fact that you know God judges impartially according to what we do. Revelation 2.23, Paul says, or excuse me, Jesus says in one of the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, he says, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 and 13, where it's describing the, the final judgment. John says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then finally, Revelation 22, verse 12. Not that these are all the verses that say this, but this is the last one I want to share with you right now. Revelation 22, verse 12. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. Now, here's the thing. That's a, that's a lot of verses, and I'm not saying that all of those verses necessarily say the same thing. Right? You might be able to argue that some of those verses are about unbelievers and not about Christians. Or you might be able to argue that one of them is about reward and not about our final destiny. Right? But my point is, all of those verses indicate that the judgment at the end is going to be according to works, and some of them at least, like Matthew 25 and uh, 1 Peter 1, and probably the verse in, in Revelation 2, and maybe 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10, that these indicate that Christians too are going to give an accounting for their works when they stand before the Lord at the end. Right? And that, that, seems, that seems pretty clear. So what do we do with that? At the very least, these verses tell us that even once we're saved, it matters how 
we live. Paul's going to make this point powerfully later in the book of Romans. When he uh, mentions the objection that people will raise, well, if, if, if grace abounds where there's lots of sin, if grace abounds, then why not just keep sinning so that we can get more grace? And Paul's going to say, absolutely not. That's not how we are to live. We are to live as people who've been brought from death to life. We are to give our lives to the Lord in obedience. And so how we live matters. We will give an account for our deeds and we will be rewarded or repaid or however you want to say it in accordance with what we have done. Now, that much ought to be clear, but that doesn't clear up everything yet. That still leaves in our minds the question of how this works in the case of believers. Are we merely talking about rewards Like on top of eternal life, you know, rewards for things that we've done if we've done things well and and loss of rewards if we haven't. There are texts that seem to talk about that. Is that what Paul is talking about here? Or are we just saying we're going to have to give an account for our works but then after we've sort of had to reckon with what we've done and not done that all that will be wiped away and and the the, the final thing is just that we're going to be saved? Or is is there some way that our works are related to our final destiny, to whether we end up in heaven and hell. We know that they're not the basis of that, but are they related to that somehow? Those questions we haven't answered yet, but Paul is going to answer them for us in Romans chapter 2. So we've looked at verse 6. We've looked at verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. And I'm arguing... He's not saying that just about all the other people out there. He's saying that's true of believers too. He's saying that's true of believers too. Now, why do I say that? How can we say that? I say that because verse 7 is so clear about what the reward Paul has in mind is. Notice this. He says, this is verse 7, To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So even if some of those passages I read earlier were not about whether or not you end up in heaven or hell, but were about rewards, this one's not. This one is about whether or not you get eternal life. Right? That's really clear. Which makes this even more complicated. Right? Because Paul is saying, seems to be saying, right, that God renders to everyone according to their works, and that means that some people are going to get eternal life in accordance with the good things they've done. How do we, how do we square that? Well, let's, let's look at the pieces first, and then we'll see how we put it together. He says, to those who by patience in well-doing, or doing good, they seek for glory and honor and immortality. What, okay, what does he mean by that? Normally when we think of people who seek for glory and honor and immortality, we think of that in a negative sense. Right? Like you might think of Achilles from the Iliad or some like Roman soldier or a general or somebody who they're seeking for worldly glory, right? worldly honor. They're seeking for the kind of immortality, so to speak, that comes from getting your name in the history books. That kind of thing. That's not what Paul is talking about here. That's not the kind of glory and honor and immortality he has in mind. This 
is a person who's doing good, who's seeking the right things. He's seeking glory from God in the right sense. For example, Jesus says in John 5.44, He says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So there is a glory from God that we should seek. And we can't believe if we're not seeking that. If we're not seeking the glory that comes from what, so what would that glory be? It'd probably be the desire to see God's glory, to see Him face to face. Or it could be the glory that comes when we see God face to face and then we're transformed or glorified to be like Him. There's no point really trying to separate those two out because they happen together. When we see Him, we become like Him, John says, 1 John 3, 2. So we, we want to see His face. We want to glorify Him. We want to be transformed into His image and to His likeness. We're supposed to seek that glory. And didn't Jesus teach us through one of His parables that we ought to live in a way that at the end we will hear our Father say, Well done, good and faithful servant. What is that but receiving honor from God. Well done, good and faithful servant. You should live desiring to hear those words. So we all Christians, we want to hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so we live a certain kind of way because we want to hear those words, right? That's what Paul's talking about. We want immortality, meaning we want to live in God's presence forever, right? We want We don't want our life to come to an end. We want what God designed for us in the beginning, which is eternal life in the presence of God. That's what Adam and Eve had until they lost it through sin. So all these things that he mentions, these are things we ought to desire, we ought to seek, seek, and that we can seek in a godly way. And Paul says that those who do seek those things, by doing good, patiently, over the long haul, God will give to them eternal life. There's the rub. Right? How can Paul say that and not be talking about a salvation that is by works? How can he say that? There are two options open to us. I'm going to argue for one of them, but both of them you can legitimately argue from for from Scripture. Okay? So if you if you if you choose the one that I'm not going to argue for, you might still be right, you know, and I'm not, I'm not going to argue with you over it uh, significantly. I'm just going to present the case for the one I think is right. But here are two options. Paul is either talking about something that is really going to happen, or he is talking about something that is only hypothetical. Right now, you remember in science class, right, when you made a hypothesis, when you're doing a science experiment, you make a hypothesis. A hypothesis is a guess about something that might happen under certain conditions. So some people will say, what Paul is talking about here is people doing good, doing the right thing, honoring the Lord, and God rewarding them with eternal life, but that's strictly hypothetical. That's a possible outcome that Paul is imagining that we know is never really going to come to pass. I mean, after all, Paul's going to say in chapter 3 that there's no one who does good. There's no one who's righteous. No one meets these qualifications. No one does this kind of thing. If they did live this way, then they would get eternal life, but they don't, so they won't. So it's kind of a moot point. 
Right? It's just hypothetical. Like I said, you can, you can make that case from Scripture. I don't think that's what Paul is saying, but you could make a good case for it. The other option is that he's talking about something that's really going to happen. And that's what I think he's saying. I think he's talking about a real event, a real outcome that is really going to happen. So how, how do we answer the question, well, there's, there's nobody who does this. There's nobody who does good. Paul talks about that in chapter 3. Well, yes, in chapter 3, he's talking about all of humanity outside of Christ. There's no one who does good on their own. But once someone is in Christ, once someone is saved, once, one, once someone becomes a believer, does the scripture not say that we become new creations? Don't our lives change? Don't our desires change? Don't our loves change? Don't the way we live, doesn't the way we live change? Don't we begin to do good and to seek to honor God and receive honor from Him? Don't we seek to glorify God and to, 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 to see His glory? Right? And to experience His glory? Don't we seek... Now, instead of our own good, our own glory, our own honor, don't we seek the honor of God? Not perfectly, by any means, but hasn't that legitimately been changed in our lives? The scripture, I think, is clear that it it has. And so I think Paul is talking in verse 7 about Christians. He's talking about people who have been saved. He's talking about people who have been changed. Their lives are now characterized... By, if we were in Galatians, we would say, the fruit of the Spirit. In in Romans, Paul says, they're characterized by well-doing. By seeking glory and honor and immortality. So I think he's talking about Christians doing good, doing the right thing. God will judge even believers according to their works. And that he will give to them eternal life. That leaves one more question. How is that not works-based salvation? How is that not the same as saying you get eternal life or not based on what you do? Well, Paul's not saying you get eternal life based on what you do. But he is saying whether or not you get eternal life will match up with what you do. And there is a difference. Right? Remember what, Paul, what James says in James chapter 2. James is dealing with people who say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. Oh yeah, I believe all that stuff. But their lives show no evidence of it whatsoever. And so what does James say? James says, you have misunderstood what faith is. You can say you believe all day long. You know, demons believe in God, right? What's the difference between you and demons? What's the difference between the kind of faith that demons have that doesn't save and the kind of faith that Christians have that does save? If you have a saving faith in Christ, guess what? James says that faith is shown by your deeds. You say that you have faith, James says? You try to show me your faith apart from works. I'll show you my faith by my works. The scripture is clear. Right? That there is no such thing as a Christian who believes in Jesus, whose life is not transformed, whose faith does not issue in works. James calls that a dead faith. It is not real. 
If you are a Christian, the Bible says, the Holy Spirit comes to take up residence inside of you. You're made a new creation. The Spirit empowers you, you, enables you, the grace of God enables you to do things that you were not able to do before on your own apart from Christ and apart from the help of the Holy Spirit. You're going to be a different person. You're not going to be perfect. You're not going to be sinless. You're not going to do the right thing all the time. But you are going to live differently. It's the same thing that Jesus was talking about in Matthew 7 when he said you can judge a tree by its fruit. Bad trees bear bad fruit. Good trees bear good fruit. Right? That's why Paul says in more than one place, he says if you live according to the works of the flesh, if your life is characterized by drunkenness and immorality and idolatry and all the rest... Such people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it doesn't matter if they say they believe in Jesus. Their life shows that they don't really belong to Him if they live in long-term, unrepentant sin. This is just the, the flip side of that. If you are a Christian, your life will manifest that in the fruit of the Spirit, in doing good. Again, it's not perfect. And so here's what I think Paul means when he says that God is going to judge even believers according to their works, and he's going to give eternal life to those who, by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality. He's not saying that when we stand before the Lord, God is going to look at the Christians and say, y'all did it. You did it perfectly. You did just what I asked. You did everything I told you to. And because you did everything so well, you have earned and deserved eternal life. That is contrary to everything that Paul says. What I think he is saying is that even on the last day, there's going to be a difference between the sheep and the goats, like Jesus said. And the difference is going to be evidenced not merely in whether these people who stand before the Lord say they believe in Jesus or not. The difference is going to be evident in what they did or did not do. That's the point of the the parable of the sheep and the goats. And Paul's saying the same thing here. That at the judgment, God is going to be able to say, that one's mine. You know how you know that one's mine? Because of what they did. Now I know not everything they did was what they were supposed to do. But look look at the things they did do. That were right. That one's mine. I snatched them. I saved them. I changed them. I gave them my spirit. I made them new. When they sinned, I convicted them. I drew them back. I was at work in them. I was empowering them, enabling them to live a life that pleased and honored me. That one's mine, and you can tell it by the way they lived. That's what Paul is saying. So we should be clear right, on the truth that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Nothing Paul says in these verses changes that. Absolutely nothing. We owe our entire salvation to the grace of God and the work of God and not to any good work that we have done. But we should also be clear that even once we are saved and our sins are forgiven, it does matter how we live. If we have been saved, our lives and our actions should show it, will show it. When we stand before the Lord on the last day, we will not be given entrance into the kingdom on the basis of our works. 
But we will be welcomed into the kingdom in accordance with our works. We may be just as surprised as the sheep in the, in the parable to hear Jesus say all the things we did for him. Remember they said, Lord, when did we... You, you said, come into the kingdom prepared for you because you fed me and clothed me. And, but we don't remember doing that. Right? We might be just as surprised as they were, to hear the things that Jesus says, this is what you did. This is how you ministered to me. This is how you evidenced your commitment to me, your faith in me. But we should not be surprised to find that our faith has been expressed in our works. That's what Paul means when he says, everyone will receive in accordance, not based on. Seems like a small difference, but it's a big difference. Not based on but in accordance with our works. It just means, it just means that when you're saved, your life changes and it'll be evident. Even on the last day, it'll be evident who belongs to Jesus, who belongs to God. It will still all be of grace, but it will be fitting too because of what God has done in us and for us. Let's pray.